Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Maria Pombo about aesthetic experiences. Welcome everyone to the Customer Experience Management Podcast. Uh, my name is uh, Carlos and I'm here today with a very special guest, Maria Pombo. Maria is a PhD student at New York University, where she is using psychological tools to characterize the experience of beauty. This is a fantastic topic. She is studying aesthetic experiences and different components of aesthetic experiences. So Maria, uh, welcome to the podcast and tell us a little bit more about what you do and what you're interested in. Yeah, thank you so much for the warm welcome. Uh, so as you said, I am a PhD student at New York University and this is I'm finishing my second year and I'm mostly interested in aesthetic experiences and trying to take them beyond what we think of as regular aesthetic experiences such as art and music and even like interpersonal attraction and looking more at aesthetic experiences in our everyday context and how those guide our decisions and our actions. That is great. So it's, it's, it's not only aesthetic experiences by themselves, but also how they influence decision-making, for example, right? Yeah. So let, let's just start by in, at the beginning. You know, in this podcast, we typically uh, ask our guests, what is an experience? And I guess in this context, more specifically, I would like to ask you, how do you define aesthetic experiences? Yeah, sure. So what is an experience? That's a very loaded question, but I think an experience is anything that engages our senses. So as long as it engages our conscious self, then I would characterize that as an experience. And in terms of aesthetic experiences, I think they're usually thought of in four different types. So as I said, art, that includes music, going to museums, going to a concert, and nature, which includes things like looking at a landscape or watching a sunset, the interhuman attraction experiences, which is what usually people think of when they think of aesthetics, and then the everyday type of experiences, which in this case would include like the consumer setting and things like food. Okay, that is interesting. So you would say that in the context of, say, customer experiences, we can have aesthetic experiences, perhaps with a product, even with an app, you know, or like different touch points, if you like. Yeah, most definitely. I think we encounter aesthetic experiences every single day in a variety of ways. Yeah, that, that, that is true. This is, this, is, this is something that is fascinating, you know, and, and typically when we are in, in the context of aesthetics, we, we talk a lot about beauty, right? Um, what is beauty? These major yeah. philosophical long-standing questions to you <laughs> as we speak, but uh, let's say from your perspective or from what you have uh, researched, how do you define beauty? And the, the following question would be, what does beauty have to do with uh, perception? Yeah, so as I said, beauty is, what is beauty is a very loaded question that has been tried tried to a bunch of people have tried to answer this question throughout history. Philosophers, for example, talk about what the meaning of beauty is all the time. But in the context of my research, we usually try to think of beauty as pleasure. And we honestly haven't been able to differentiate between high beauty and high pleasure. And we think they may be synonymous to each other. And to answer your second question of what does beauty have to do with perception, that's also 
an interesting question that I'm trying to get at in my current research. So obviously beauty experiences are very perceptual in nature. We require our ability to perceive our sensory information to experience beauty. But then how does beauty relate to perception is different. Like what is this Venn diagram between beauty and perception? Is beauty entirely part of perception? Is there some overlap? And sometimes when you think of beauty in the context of philosophy, beauty seems like this fluffy, aloof thing that probably is contradictory of everything we can study empirically. So the question is where does beauty land in the context of perception in a psychological uh, environment? So a way to do that in a way that we've in our lab devised to do that is trying to compare beauty judgments to perceptual judgments in the same absolute scale. So we're using information theory to calculate mutual information and compare the mutual information of beauty judgments, the mutual information of perceptual judgments to be able to compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges and try to make a, make a sense of how do beauty judgments fall within this realm of perception. And we, we have started believing that beauty judgments are just like perceptual judgments and perhaps they're just perceptual judgments with very high individual differences. Okay, that is super interesting. Uh, to what extent is beauty a, something constructed in your opinion? Um, I mean, I guess the way in which we assign value or hedonic value to something in a way is it, it must be determined by things that we learn from our social context, cultural context, environments, and so on. But on the other hand, there might be also some, I don't know, like uh, diagnosticity, if you like, of objects in our environment such that we assign value to them a priori, if you like. Uh, so I don't know, what, what's your, your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think beauty experiences are very malleable to our context, our internal state, perhaps our mood, perhaps how much attention we're paying while we're experiencing something. Um, so in that sense, I guess they would be somewhat constructed because they are dependent on our current state. At the same time, I think what we find beautiful is a very big part of our identity. And in fact, when we introduce ourselves to other people, we kind of say who we are, where we're from, maybe a bit of our experience. And then we just start going to like, this is what I like, this is what I dislike. So in a sense, what we find beautiful is somewhat stable in the sense of our identity so yeah i don't know if that answers your question specifically but i think you can think of beauty as being constructed but also being something that you keep with your own identity yeah i think no i think that that uh, definitely answers my my question and i guess paraphrasing what you're saying is like it's complex <laughs> yeah it depends like, exactly it depends right which is kind of like uh, something you know i was thinking when i was asking you this question i was thinking of uh you know the sort of things that we like right uh, and and you can think that many i mean there are some evolutionary studies showing that we, for example, tend to like uh, sweet tastes when we are born, you know, almost because of their nutritional content, perhaps, of sweet foods. And we tend to like bitter foods or bitter tastes because they have some sort of like, um, you know, association maybe with poison, I don't know, like poisonous foods or something like that. That's kind of like the, the, yeah. the reasoning that some people have. But, um, so, but I was thinking, so that's something that is kind of like uh, you start with, if you like, uh, or potentially it's kind of like you come with that package. Okay, I see. Uh, 
Uh, but then on top of that, you kind of like, of course, learn to like coffee, you know, at some point. So it's bitter, but, you know, you are getting exposed to it and then you like it. And, and I was thinking on top of that is like, how do you draw the difference between the liking and beauty uh, if there is? If there is a difference between liking and beauty. So sometimes we tend to use them interchangeably, at least in the context of research, the type of question you ask when you're doing some sort of aesthetic study is related to beauty, related to liking. But at least I think of beauty as something greater than liking, as very, very high liking or very, very high pleasure. So you can just like generally like something. And it's it's also an interesting question when it comes to preference, right? Like I personally don't like coffee, but I also don't like tea. But if you've asked me to choose what I prefer between coffee and tea, I'm gonna prefer tea, but I still don't like it. So sometimes it's tricky when talking about preferences on translating that to an actual aesthetic experience. That is that is quite interesting because it shows that it's relative to the context in which you are kind of like assigning value to whatever you're presented with, right? Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, okay, kind of like in the same line of thinking that we, we come from, uh, <clears throat> I know that you have recently done some work on individual differences on aesthetic experiences. Uh, so I guess the general question here is how idiosyncratic are aesthetic experiences? I think they're very, very... I'm throwing all these big questions to you as we speak, but I think, uh, yeah, your research really sh uh, shed some light on it, so... Yeah, I think uh, individual differences in aesthetics are huge, and as I said, this probably stems from the fact that our aesthetic experiences form part of an, our identity to a certain extent, and I don't think it's a secret to anyone that you and I prefer very different things. And this has a huge implication for the research of aesthetics, right? Because if the way psychology and science have been founded is on the idea of means, you collect a sample, you calculate the mean, and you make a conclusion, you generalize, you form a model based on these means. And that's pretty problematic when we talk about aesthetic experiences because that's completely disregarding this these individual differences across the population. So I think not only are they huge, but they're also very important to keep in mind. I think that is actually a, a critique that you can almost generalize to many, many fields of uh, human behavior uh, uh, research. And it's like, we really tend to focus on kind of like what's the tendency, but of course there is a lot of variation in some dimensions more specifically uh, between people. So that, that is conscious. But then what, something that I wonder is, let's say in the context of experiences, uh, what would be something that you would tell people uh, studying aesthetic experiences, you know, because it's like there is some idiosyncratic idiosyncrasy in preferences and, and beauty experiences, let's say. People, some certain people find some things more beautiful than others, and, you know, there are differences. So if you want to study or kind of like create something that is beautiful, what, how should people go about it? Yeah, that's a tough question because my first inkling is to say, like, you won't be able to make it beautiful to everyone. I think the question of whether there are things that we find universally beautiful is unanswered. Um, but yeah, I think trying to think of what the audience is and perhaps trying to make it beautiful for that audience and not for everyone. Obviously, there are cultural differences in what we find beautiful. So culture may be a way of identifying the type of segment 
uh, to which you're targeting your beautiful object or whatever you're creating. At the same time, like there's also open room for individualization. Like how, like does it have to be a beautiful object for everyone, or could we potentially find a way to generate different experiences for different people to satisfy their own individual aesthetic taste? I think you're mentioning two two things that are quite interesting. Like one is uh, perhaps even do segmentation based on even uh, preferences or beauty, if you like. Uh, and another one is customization, right? Like in the end, we do live in a much more customized world where companies are kind of like adapting to our personal preferences and so on. So this is actually a very good opportunity to, you know, like really capitalize on this trend, you know, to make things that actually work for people individually. <clears throat> so that is that 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 is uh, uh, something that companies can do indeed. Um, but there's on the other hand, like this sort of uh, research or some context in which people have been arguing, you know, that there are certain features that we tend to prefer uh, more than others. Uh, so I guess something that I, that I wanted to also ask you is what are these features that, you know, there seems to be a tendency for people, broadly speaking, to like, and how should we see them from the, the context of uh, individual and, you know, context differences? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think there are features that we tend on average to prefer and there's a huge body of literature talking about that I think things like symmetry come and curvature the golden ratio certain combinations of color those are the types of things that tend to come up in these types of things that are generally preferred and why do we prefer them that's another open question perhaps there's an evolutionary advantage to some of these things, symmetry could be tied to quality, curvature could be tied to safety. Usually sharp things tend to be pretty dangerous. So I don't know, it could be something evolutionary that as you were saying, we're born with these types of things, then we're trained to stay away from them just from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and at the same time, these types of things are very easy to study. You just manipulate one of these aspects in whatever stimulus you're testing. And I think that's why they're somewhat appealing to researchers to look into these types of features that are on, on average preferred. <laughs> but kind of answering your second question here, I think that's not all of our aesthetic experiences. We don't usually go to a grocery store and pick up a product because of its curvature. There's a lot more to that. So I think as long as we keep that in mind, then then we can study them just recognize that just because a product is symmetric or curved or the package is blue then we're going to prefer it inherently um i think that's kind of where they fall i think that's actually a very good point you know and this is something that we you know of course in research we have to control tightly the variables to see what kind of like makes a difference but but it's not that because your product has certain features, visual features, let's say, people are just going to buy it. You know, it all also has to have like a proper offer, like a pricing strategy. You know, it has to stand for something, you know, maybe they even like the quality of the product itself should be solving a specific need and so on. So I think that's actually a, a, a very good point. Um, yet, I would say also uh, kind of like as you say, probably it can give it a competitive advantage in some way or another, maybe at a specific moment in time that you're interacting with the product 
And this links actually nicely to some of the work that we did together on uh, you know, how brands can actually differentiate uh, in terms of premiumness by capitalizing on aesthetic science. Can you tell us a little bit more about this work? Yeah, sure. This was a very fun project I had the honor of working with you on. And so here we were kind of tasked with this idea of determining what makes a product premium. And we had some knowledge that perhaps symmetry could help convey a product as premium. So we kind of grabbed onto this idea of evolutionary psychology that symmetry could be related to quality. So we wanted to test whether it was actually the quality part of symmetry that was conveying a product as, as premium. So we manipulated both symmetry and quality in like typical goods. I think we used orange juice packaging. So here we manipulated the symmetry by arranging the labels in a certain way. So all the elements in the label were either symmetric or more so balanced than symmetric because with text, it's much harder to make a word symmetric. Um, and so we had it either aligned in the center, making it symmetric or left aligned or right aligned, making it asymmetric. And then for the quality, we looked at the naturalness of the juice. So since we were doing orange juice, the highest quality juice was 100% real fruit. And then the lowest quality I think was 30% real fruit. So um, that's how we operationalize symmetry and quality. And we wanted to measure premiumness. And what we found is that if your product is high quality, then there isn't really any room for aesthetic features like symmetry to uh, convey premiumness. Like quality itself does the job. And if it's very high quality, then people will perceive it as, um, as premium. But if the product is low quality, and it's worth highlighting that a low quality product is not necessarily a bad product, you can differentiate a product by many other things like price or flavor or things like that. So if your product is low quality, then symmetrical packagings were perceived, products with symmetrical packaging were perceived as more premium than products with asymmetrical packaging. So in this sense, uh, symmetry wasn't a way to differentiate a product as premium. Yeah, I think uh, this project actually was uh, pretty fun. I, I agree with you. And, and, and it really shows that, you know, like uh, everything else equal, I guess. Uh, uh, symmetry can make a specific difference in terms of prim premiumness perception, depending on the situation in which you are kind of like using it. Um, which also actually led us to a discussion. I remember that when you were uh, here at BI, we had a little discussion of, you know, okay, so what 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 is this telling us? Is this about... You know, maybe having like a bad product and creating like a nice cover. Of course not, right? Like this is kind of like not, it was not our thinking. It was more like if you have a product that is of high quality or, or if it's of medium quality or lower quality, perhaps cheaper or more expensive and so on, how do you actually communicate to the consumer what is actually in the product, right? So that they can discriminate in the massive uh, world of products, the actual meaning of what they're about to experience, right? Yeah. However, there is something that, you know, like uh, we discussed about this and it's like, you know, that's kind of like one uh, good intention way of using this research on, on beauty. But of course, you, you might also well say uh, beauty research can actually use use to kind of like cover things, you know, and basically make people judge them by their cover. 
So I guess the question here, the first question, and I'll ask the second one after your answer is, what are some ethical implications of applied beauty research? Yeah, so, I mean, I think we already judge things by their cover. So that almost highlights the importance of beauty research and trying to understand what are these initial judgments that we're making. But then the other part of it is that beauty and aesthetic experiences are not all about appearance. I personally believe that if a product does what it's supposed to do, then it's going to deliver an aesthetic experience, regardless of what it looks like. So there's some aesthetics to utility itself. So I think just focusing on the appearance of consumer products is almost a shallow approach in terms of using the strength of aesthetics research in uh, consumer experiences. What are some ethical implications? I think a lot of it is just based on the motives. Like, are you trying to better the consumer experience? Are you trying to give your customer a more pleasurable interaction with your product? Or are you trying to influence your customer to do something they wouldn't otherwise do if it wasn't for whatever manipulation you are using? So. Yeah, so I think it's based on the reasoning behind the intervention. I, and I think I agree with that. You know, in, in one way or another, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, static science, but the use that you that you give to it, right? So your 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 intentions are basically what determines whether your action is good or bad, and that is probably something that you can more broadly generalize to any initiatives in the context of customer experiences. It's not the tools that you have there or the knowledge that you have there. It's how you use it. What yeah. makes the difference in terms of uh, whether it's kind of like uh, bad or not. And that's what you have to reflect on. It's like, how, why am I using it? For what reason? And then that kind of like determines a little bit more uh, this. There's, so the second question that I was thinking, this is something that just came up uh, in my mind is, you know, we we live in a world that this, this I'm talking for many of the consulting projects that I've done and, and some of the research, research that I've seen. Many people are focusing on creating like these exceptional static experiences, like good experiences, you know, pleasant experiences and so on. But something that you learn quickly from art, uh, in particular art appreciation, is that, you know, the, the aesthetic experience spectrum is not necessarily focused on things that are just pleasurable, right? Like you actually can have a, a an aesthetic experience that perhaps just triggers like some fear, you know, or something just different, right? Like it's aesthetic in the sense that you're kind of like assigning some value to uh, whatever you are perceiving at a given moment. And um, I don't know, you connect maybe with an art piece that is triggering something in you, sort of like a, 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 a reaction that is might not necessarily be pleasant, yet is part of the intention of the artist, right? So yeah, and I think a, a good example that's usually cited is uh, sad music, like where you find pleasure in sad music, and especially when we're sad, or at least in my experience, when I'm sad, I like to listen to sad music. And I don't know, maybe it's a sort of empathy with someone else that's feeling what I'm feeling or something like that. But yes, I think aesthetic experiences are not synonymous to positively valenced. Perfect. Okay, so that's an excellent example. What you're saying is an excellent example. But then what I'm wondering is like, if you see social media, you know, advertising, uh, even movies, you know, on, on different kinds of media, there seems to be, um, or maybe not movies, but, you know, at least in some market 
thing-related media, there seems to be a tendency to try to focus on pleasurable experiences. Uh, and that sort of creates like this idea, I don't know if you see like Instagram filters or Snapchat filters or, uh, you know, like the pictures of influencers now that is very common. And it's like everything's trying to bias things towards pleasurable experiences, if you like. So that, how does that influence us in the long run? It's basically my question is like, Focusing on certain kinds of aesthetic experiences, it's kind of like changing, let's say, our benchmark of how we judge aesthetic experiences. Or, or what would you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how you define pleasure. I think you're talking about pleasure here in the context of almost like an imposed social construct. Yeah. Like, I personally find pleasure in listening to sad music when I'm sad. So I think there's a little, a bit of a like subtlety about the definition of pleasure here. How does focusing on aesthetics towards like a positively balanced or some sort of imposed social construct influence in the long run? I mean, I think this is what influences cultural trends, which eventually kind of absorb into who we are as humans i don't know if i have an answer to your question i think it's you know, a tough but, one but, but i like the way that you're rephrasing it you know it really depends on your view on on on, on pleasure you know and whether it's kind of like this more like i derive pleasure from or whether it's kind of like an agreed uh, standard that is being presented to us as what is the standard for pleasure so uh, i guess there it lies this sort of like definition and and I guess my question was was around that, and probably there's not like a like a like an answer, a specific answer at the moment. But it's like, how do these standard, uh, let's say, or these agreements that we have about what should gives us pleasure, changes us in the long run? If this is kind of like sort of a things that we are being exposed uh, permanently. But I agree with you. Maybe there is not like a like a straightforward answer uh, to that yet. Um, but what we should actually be able to derive some insights now is how can actually companies use insights from aesthetic science and i would like to pick on your brain for that maria yeah sure so i mean i think as we mentioned a big part is the motives like there are the tools there but what is the motivation behind using these tools of aesthetic science i think also focus on the science make sure you know what assumptions you're making make sure that you're not ignoring these contextual and individual differences. Um, I feel like I had something else to say, but I completely forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, maybe maybe something that I, I, I wanted to ask as well is so, you know, they can, they probably should be uh, thinking about, so companies should be thinking about, you know, individual differences, how possibly we differ in terms of the things that we find aesthetically pleasing and so on. Also try to think about the motives that are behind using this. And what can also tell them about how to use aesthetic science for achieving their aims? Yeah, I think going back to, <laughs> I remembered what I was going to say. Uh, going back to it, I think that recognizing that beauty is not all about appearance is also very important in the context of consumer experiences and recognizing that there could be beauty and utility and beauty in the ways things function and it's not completely independent. Like usually aesthetics is thrown as this like 
almost frivolous thing. It's like, oh, and then there's just aesthetics. It's just the way it looks. But when you talk about beauty, when you talk about pleasure, you are capturing the essence of the product working in the way it's meant to work. And going back to your question, can you repeat the question? <laughs> but actually, you know, I want to to back what you just said. You know, aesthetic experiences are not necessarily about just yeah, what you just said. You know, it's not that oh, that's just aesthetic aesthetics. You know, it's like no aesthetics is like a more comprehensive, multi-dimensional sort of like experience that we can have with multiple different things. You know, like there are people that find numbers aesthetically pleasing. You know, like they they find yeah. aesthetic experiences in numbers, mathematicians. That's kind of like a good example. Yeah, you can. There's papers on equations and what constitutes a beautiful. A mathematical equation or what constitutes as a beautiful experiment or a beautiful data visualization so exactly yeah, I think... it's not necessarily just the appearance of it it's just the whole concept you know of whatever you are experiencing at a given moment that kind of like gives you this feeling of uh, yeah beauty if you like so i think that's something that is very very interesting because uh uh yeah, companies should focus perhaps more on that rather than just the the the, the look off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, that makes sense. Um, so I, I'll ask you the other question, but you know, like I want to make a little stop here, Maria. If our listeners want to contact you, what is the best way to do it? I know that you have a Twitter account. Uh, can you please tell us your Twitter account? Yeah, sure. So my handle is at Mari, like M I M A R I underscore Pombo. And you can also email me at maria.pombo at nyu.edu. And I think my personal website is linked below the, in the description. Yeah, I'm going to post your personal website on the description for anyone that would like to follow your research. I can anticipate now that she will have some very interesting papers to come and that are now a uh, near being published, uh, you might want to check check them out. So please uh, go to her website and, and she will uh, be posting everything there. But I have two final questions for you. So the first one is, <clears throat> tell us what is coming in your research. Yeah, so as I kind of hinted at earlier, I think I'm looking at this relationship between beauty and perception more from like a basic science perspective and trying to compare beauty judgments and perceptual judgments in the same absolute scale. I've also been working a lot on these contextual factors we've talked about a little bit and specifically social experiences and how our social contexts influence our aesthetic experiences. I've also been working with you on a project on how preferences are associated with specific behaviors like approach and avoidance motivation. And I'm also trying to gear my research towards a more applied setting and trying to, again, take these tools from aesthetics research and relate them to the consumer context and trying to make consumer experiences better and inform company decisions based on what we find. It's interesting. I, I really like uh, that uh, research that you're doing, you know, how aesthetic experiences can influence decision making. I think it's something that is quite uh, important for anyone in the experience uh, economy. And last but not least, uh, the final question that I have for you, Maria, is, you know, we always ask to our guests to give some recommendations for practice. So 
we have students, you know, we have some people uh, working in companies, uh, designing experiences for customers. So based on your research, the work that you have done, what would you recommend to them? Yeah, I think first and foremost, don't forget about individual differences in aesthetic judgments. I we didn't really touch much upon this, but I do have a research project on the stability of beauty judgments and trying to use repeated measures of beauty. So that's just when you ask a participant the same question twice within an experiment and trying to use this as a metric of how stable beauty judgments are within a short time scale. And the conclusion of our paper is that you can use repeated measures. So another one of my recommendations would be to not fear like don't fear using repeated measures as a metric of stability of beauty judgments. And I think lastly, if you want to differentiate a product in terms of premiumness, then make the package symmetric. Yeah, that is super nice. Maria, let me just uh, say, I, I said I did the last question, but I, I really like what you were just mentioning about uh, beauty, uh, uh, like the stability of beauty judgments. Something that um, it happens, I mean, how stable are beauty judgments uh, in general? Because that's something that many people, for example, in uh, designing different touch points for brand experiences like advertisements, websites, and so on, they wonder, you know, like how long can my experience last? Like the sort of experience that I want to deliver with the sort of set of designs that I have or the sort of kind of like ecosystem, just not to put it in only a cover, but you know, like the whole ecosystem that I design for, for, for a given experience. So how stable would you say that they are? Yeah, so I mean, trying to unpack the question of stability a little bit more there's stability in the sense of over time like will my experience be equally pleasurable in a year two years five years ten years down the road and there's another question of stability in the same exact moment in time like we know our brains are noisy we our perceptions are noisy our actions are noisy so trying to understand this noise of beauty judgment to call it like that and if I ask you the same question twice, how variable is your answer going to be? And essentially, you need to know this initial stability to be able to determine how things change over time. Because if you don't have a sense of how stable they are to begin with, then you can't tell if you've learned something or you've changed something over time. Like maybe it's just due to random noise. So, so yeah, I think you can see it both ways. Like, Maybe they're not stable at all and we're just constantly influenced by our context and the people we're uh, surrounded by in our internal states. At the same time, you can see them as this fundamental part of your identity and something that you carry with you um, over time. So I think this is another case of the, it depends. Um, but it depends, but yet it's a very practical recommendation if you like for people uh, doing research in this context, right? Because it's like not only measure how a single person, let's say, changes their beauty judgments, and I guess judgments in general, uh, but how that changing that same person changes in time, right? So yeah. it's like you know, this kind of like two, two levels of change, if you like, that can help uh, people make better decisions. And if you really follow your recommendation of you know, doing some segmentation, then you can even segment by the level of change and then see that change in time. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I think it's uh, very implementable in, in, uh, in market research and in general in consumer experience research, uh, very uh, practically oriented. So yeah, that's nice. No, Maria, that answers my, my final question then. <laughs> it's <laughs> a pleasure to talk to you. Um, 
I think this is a very, very interesting, uh, uh, you know, like topic of research and practice. And I'm looking forward already to seeing uh, your upcoming uh, research. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun discussing these important and also hard to answer questions. And I think there is room for aesthetics research in consumer context. So it's nice to have the opportunity to think about it in that sense. Thank you so much, Maria.